So last Sunday we moved through the glimmer of hope and love that's inserted into Lent, what's called Rose Sunday, where we typically read the story of the prodigal son, which is meant to be read in Lent really as also the story of the waiting and loving father. And now in this last week before we come to Palm Sunday, Lent, our Lenten readings help us to penetrate the deepest parts of our hearts by looking at the heart of Mary and Judas. Our gospel reading said that Mary took expensive ointment and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. But Judas Iscariot, he who already had it in his heart to betray, to betray Jesus said, why is this ointment not sold and the money given to the poor? And then John gives us our first glimpse into Judas's heart, his true intentions when it, and John writes, Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. But Jesus said, and here's our first glimpse into Mary's heart, her structure of desire and intentionality. Jesus said of her, her internal motivation is, is that she's anticipating and honoring the day of my burial. Now, you know, unless we're a first century Jew and, you know, even beyond that had the capacity to somehow get into John's head, who's always telling us these things, not like in secret code, but he just says them to us sort of artistically. The fact that a woman would anoint Jesus for his burial, unheard of, stunning. That wasn't the role of women in society, that they would anoint the Messiah. And the fact that she would undo her hair in public Jewish law said you could divorce your wife for such a thing. And that's not how women, be, you know, hold themselves out in public. They would have their hair up somehow. And so the Gospel of John is offering us here kind of a radical view of the place. I don't, I want to say the word power, but I don't mean it in a cheesy sense. By power, I just simply mean capacity, ability, calling, so John is showing us here a radical new view of the power that women hold in the kingdom of God. Judas, from his heart, dismisses Mary. Where John, you know, John the beloved, you know, maybe the second or third ranking, you know, guy in the New Testament, depending on where you put him and Paul, right? John sees her as an equal. Simply a beloved, a beloved disciple, just like him. So that the equal footing is not based on gender. Like, John's not a proto-feminist, right? I mean, I just need to think about that. What we think of as 20th century feminism would have not been anywhere in those, these people's heads. So this isn't a feminist statement. This isn't a statement even so much about gender. This is a statement about fundamental equality of what God's doing as he creates a people. So John sees her as a beloved disciple so that the equality is rooted in followership of Jesus, not in gender. And so this begins to get us at the issues of heart. And again, this is where I'm just such a Jesus freak. He's so smart. And his question in John, not in our reading today, 
But Jesus would often say to people something like, what do you want? And this is what I want us to get at today as we think about the structure of our own hearts. So one way to get at this is to think about the number of choices that are available to us for content today. Did a little checking yesterday, and according to the sources I could find, there's now 1,700 TV channels. I mean, I'm young enough to remember that there was about five, and I was the remote control. Some of you remember that? Go change the channel, right, your parents would say. So I'm old enough to remember ABC, CBS, NBC, and I think Channel 9 and Channel 5. And, you know, we were the remotes, right? 1,700 TV channels. According to what I saw yesterday, uh, they, they estimate roughly a billion websites now. Not web pages, websites. There's about 150 major social media opportunities out there now. And as I've told you before, I don't bash these kinds of things. Um, these can be empowering if you have a clear grid through which to make your viewing choices. How much, how often, what, but without a clear grid, without a heart that brings something to it, well then they just are what they are. And so this raises the question, how do our choices align with our stated commitment to be a follower of Jesus? Dallas Willard in his book, Hearing God, wrote this, the generally speaking, we're in God's will whenever we're leading the kind of life he wants for us. Did you catch that? Whenever we're leading the kind of life he wants for us. Because it's clear as soon as you think about it, it's possible to do the things commanded by God and still not be the kind of person he wants us to be. Who are examples of that in the New Testament? people who are scrupulous about trying to understand what God wanted done and then trying to do it. Yeah, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were classic to this. And so is Judas. And this is what the passage is meant to tell us, that it's possible to become worse sorts of human beings in the pursuit of religion. I mean, this is the mirror that our society is holding up to us and has been for a long time now that they honestly see Christians as worse sorts of people and they don't want to become one because then they have to start hating people. They think they have to hate Islam and all Muslims and they think they have to suppress women and they think they have to hate gay people. And so literally people are afraid to become Christians today because they don't, when you ask them, when like scientific pollsters ask them why, I can't remember now if it's the number one reason, but it's in the top two or three, is I don't want to become that kind of person. Like, I, I know there's a spiritual aspect of me, and I want to explore my spirituality, but I don't want to do it in the context of religion, and certainly not in the context of Christianity. Judas is classic about this. He knew how to keep the rules and say the right things. Shouldn't this money have been given to the poor? It's classic, right? How many of what we call the minor prophets today, or even the major ones, would have railed on Israel for precisely what? Not taking care of the poor, right? Think of nothing else, Amos. They just railed on Israel for not taking care of the poor. So Jesus knew, the, I mean, sorry, Judas knew the exact right religious thing to say. But his heart, his internal bent, you might think, or his truest initiatives for his life were far off track. Why? 
Because as we've been learning, we are primarily lovers who are motivated by something deep within us, not primarily thinkers. I heard James Smith, who's been helping us think through this, say a few weeks ago, you might not love what you think you love. And that's at least one great purpose for Lent, the work we do in Lent, is to ask ourselves, what is it that I actually love? So try this on for size. What if Judas isn't a character like in a Lucas film or something? You know, what if he's not Darth Vader or something? What if Judas is simply just a confused human being who's not square about what he actually loves? Do I love this Jewish story I've been told all my life? Do I love my personal safety? Do I love Jesus and the story he's telling? See what I mean? What if Judas isn't like a cartoon character? What if he's somebody more like you and I who just got really twisted in his thinking because his heart was twisted towards something that wasn't aligned with Jesus in his story? But what about Mary's heart? What about somebody who would spend a, approximately a year's pay on something to anoint Jesus, who would let her hair down in public, in a sense, just sort of put her whole heart out there. We see in Mary's heart something like, I give up my rights and I give myself to Jesus. What we see in Mary's actions is a heart that says something like, my deepest delight is in Jesus and I'm willing to rebuild my identity around Jesus. We can see in Mary that she's living in the truth that in following Jesus, we're not shooting for mere obedience. Shouldn't this be given to the poor? We're not shooting for that kind of legalistic obedience. What we're shooting for is sincere love. Poured out, as Travis just helped us sing. Sincere love poured out from which obedience naturally flows. But please listen to me. That requires a kind of personal intelligence, a kind of discernment in which, what if Mary actually like, knew Jesus' heart and his head that she could take her hair down in front of Jesus because she knew, like she knew that she knew that she knew in her deepest knower that she was not to Jesus an object of sex. See, that's a kind of personal knowledge that John's always working in. That's why he doesn't sound so logical. I don't mean to say he's not logical, but he's working with a different kind of logic. It's more evocative. Where he's trying to help us see behind scenes. And Mary knows something about this. She, I, and I don't mean like she has theological ideas. I mean, she knows something. And by the way, John 11, brothers don't just rise from the dead every day. She's celebrating the goodness and power and almightiness of God through Jesus. And so letting her hair down, so to speak, in public and pouring out her love in this way makes sense to her. And it's from that sincere love that we get the kind of obedience that Jesus cherishes in her. See, there is an obedience there. That's why Jesus said, leave her alone. She's doing what's right. This is actually, to use a big word, this is an eschatological act. This is an act that has 
reference to the future. She's anointing me for my burial. This is the pivot in John's gospel, where now we're going to start heading to the upper room discourse and then to the end. This is why Augustine has famously said, love God and do whatever you want. It's a paraphrase. Love God, do whatever you want. Probably lots of you have heard that saying. It gets kind of bantered around. But you may not have understood the context or heard the rest of the sentence. So listen to the rest of the sentence. Augustine said, love God and do whatever you please. For the soul trained in love to God, did you catch that? For the soul trained untwisted around malformed desires, but made straight in love to God, will do nothing to offend the one who is loved. Love God. Do what you want. Just keeping it real here, just us friends. How much of your Christian life have you spent in grunting moralisms? I shouldn't look at this. I shouldn't watch that. I shouldn't taste this. I shouldn't touch that. And so we spend it in this frustrating, deeply guilt-producing, shame-filled kind of ways of trying to grunt our way into moralistic obedience. And that's never been the path. It never will be the path. It's never going to work. The path is, what do you love? And out of that poured-out love will naturally become obedience. So that back to Willard... What we're looking for in this life is a life of free-hearted collaboration with Jesus. I can't tell you how much I love that vision. And not just for myself, but for you. Honest to God, if I had a magic wand and could wave it across this church, maybe my highest wish would be precisely that, that you would have a life of free-hearted collaboration with Jesus in the kingdom of God intelligently lived from a hand-to-hand conversational walk with God. That is the biblical ideal for human life. The biblical ideal for human life is not to get your little butt in heaven when you die. That is an aspect of this story, a great aspect, but it's not the biblical vision. The biblical vision from Genesis to Revelation 22.5 is a cooperative people, Adam and Eve. Look at this cool thing I've just done. Come work with me in it. Revelation 22.5. And they will rule and reign with him forever, ever in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the biblical vision. And it flows from not grunting obedience, but a heart that's been untwisted and then set right. See, Jesus doesn't doesn't say, suppress your desires. That's what your mother said, right? Just kidding, moms, just kidding. Right? Or that's what your kindergarten teacher said, right? Or maybe even your youth pastor. Suppress, or at least that's the message we get, right? Whether authority figures say that or not, I don't know. I'm not picking on authority figures. But somehow we kind of all got that message, didn't we? Suppress your desire. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, come follow me and I'll reorder your desires. That's the picture we see, for instance, in Isaiah and Philippians. In the Isaiah passage, you know, again, this is another passage that gets misquoted and misused all the time. You know, see, I'm doing a new thing. Well, yes, the new thing here is a new deliverance. And the point of this passage is that when I delivered you in the Exodus, I turned the waters into dry land. 
But now you're in this new era of your time in life where you're not being sustained in this new time yet. And so in this new time, I'm gonna take dry land and give you water. That is to say, God will always be with you in whatever phase you're in, in your repentance, in your deliverance, in your change, in your untwisting of yourself. And in Philippians, for me, since I was a teenager, I've just always noted for Paul the positive vision the incredible love poured out for Christ and and his intention to have his own heart changed. I mean, just, I'm not gonna read the whole passage, but just listen to this language. First of all, for the sake of Christ. You know, not religion, not my mother, not my church, not my denomination, for the church of Christ. Sorry, for the sake of Christ. I consider everything a loss. Why, Paul? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then hear these words, for whose sake I've lost all things and consider them garbage. Why, Paul? That I might gain Christ and be found in him. I press on to take hold of Christ, straining towards what's ahead, pressing on towards the goal. Now, can you see how that positive love rooted in a positive vision creates a positive intentionality so that it's something like a deciduous tree, you know, that in the fall it loses its leaves, naturally making space for new leaves to grow. That's the vision of the New Testament for you. A branch abiding in a vine such that that union, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, naturally, instinctually, intuitively within us creates a different kind of person. Well, when we think about changing hearts, I'll say this in conclusion, um, I guess there are mountaintop experiences, but for me, almost 41 years now of trying to follow Jesus, I think I've noticed in general, I suppose there's exceptions to every rule, but in general, there aren't any big wins. There are just small steps in the right direction. And then occasionally, you might find yourself challenged at work that if I just fudge this little bit here, I could get $10,000 more on my bonus. But you'll never really even consider it. Not that that's a big win. It's that you've prepared yourself in these little steps to be in that moment. I thought yesterday of Nelson Mandela as an example of this. You know Nelson Mandela? He was a Methodist, as you know, working against apartheid, this unwavering passion to pursue a goal that nobody thought was achievable in South Africa in his day. He's in prison for 27 years doing hard labor in a quarry. Twelve of those years, it said, he spent in solitary confinement. As a punishment, he was kept from both the funeral of his mother when she died and his eldest son when he died. He was allowed one visitor a year and that for 30 minutes. And he says of himself, just again, thinking of no big wins, no defeating apartheid, no big wins, just small steps in the right direction. Mandela writes, I would do stationary running in my cell in the morning for up to 45 minutes. They wouldn't let him outside, so he'd run in place. 
I would also perform 100 fingertip push-ups. Not bad, Nelson. 200 sit-ups, 50 deep knee bends, and various other calisthenics. And he says, I gave myself to the deep and careful study of the issues of my day. And then, bam, for lots of political and social reasons, he's out. And then before you know it, apartheid is gone and the kingdom of God has come. Why? Because somebody just gave his life little by little to God. But in our day, we've lost, at least in my view, I want to say for myself, a sense of the heroic. We've lost a sense of the heroic in favor of fame or celebrity. Now it's all about cliques, followers, but we know very little of the heroic. David Brooks, you know the, New, Te- the um, New Testament, the New York Times columnist has written that American popular culture has pivoted. That once the dominant view was that the self was to be distrusted and that external institutions were to be trusted. But now, the dominant view is, is that the self is to be trusted and external constraints are to be distrusted. Lost now, Brooks writes, is the more balanced view that we are simultaneously splendidly endowed but also broken. And so here in our last week of Lent, I want you to hear this last sentence from Brooks. So let me give you the context again. Lost now is the more balanced view that we're splendidly endowed but also broken. And without that view, the whole logic of character building falls apart. Now, Brooks is obviously not exegeting scripture here. You know, we might want to say it a little more carefully. We might want to say, and without that view that we're splendidly endowed and also broken, the whole logic of Lent falls apart. The whole logic of discipleship falls apart. The whole logic of pursuing Christ's likeness for the sake of others falls apart without both knowing that we are splendidly endowed, but also broken. So this morning as we come to our quiet time, I want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. And I want to ask you to search yourself in a certain way this morning. And that is, how are you splendidly created? How are you splendidly endowed? What is it about yourself where you notice the handiwork of God, his shaping, forming power in your life? How are you splendidly endowed? And then in our last Lenten moments, what parts of you are broken and sabotage this work of God? For therein lies the challenge of reordering your loves to align with the splendid creation of God.